Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, my dear friends, brothers, and sisters. Uh, as much as I can possibly communicate this through a screen, I wish I could uh, do better, but I, I just want you to know how much we love you, how much I miss you, uh, being together and long for you, and desire to be together again soon. Uh, a few things to discuss before we get into the Word this morning. First, let's just get it out there. and You're all watching. You, you know what's going on. You can breathe your sigh of relief. You know, uh, I got my hair cut this week so that, you know, it wouldn't be a stumbling block for the gospel. Um, and what I mean by that is not that any of you think that it's so wrong that I might have my hair a little bit longer, but that the tufts around my ear and behind my neck and that was coming out underneath my mic was so distracting and so disorienting for some of you that you couldn't pay attention to the word. And so uh, I understand if my hair speaks louder than the word, I'll cut my hair. Not a problem. I'm willing to do that. Uh, I was due for a cut at the beginning of all this back in early March, and then, you know, things closed up, so I didn't go to get my hair cut, and uh, things were going along fine. I thought Kristen was not willing to cut my hair. She refused. I don't blame her. It's fine. Um, you know, it just wasn't number one on my priority list, but uh, as, the, as the comments began to accumulate about such things, I realized that it needed to move to uh, the highest point of priority to make sure that happened so that it wouldn't have any more distractions. So appointments opened back up, opened back up, and uh, here I am all cut up for you guys. All right, second thing. Uh, that's, that's kind of a fun, silly one, right? But uh, second thing is more important. Uh, we need to be praying for one another. Uh, this is, I believe, the 10th or 11th week here that we've been going on like this. I want to call us to remember to pray for one another, to take the time. We don't know everything that's going on in the body, uh, but I'll say this. We do know a few things, enough to know that this has been a very full week. Um, the members of Cornerstone Bible Church have had a lot of things that are going on. Uh, there have been causes for great rejoicing and also cause for tears this week. Um, and, you know, a lot has happened in the past week, but we know that this coming week holds many things in the same way, that we will have times of joy and times of sorrow. Uh, we hate the evil that still works in this world and causes pain and suffering, but we glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that it gives us in the midst of our sorrow. So uh, we are praying for you, and we ask that you would take the call to prayer seriously for one another. I mean, James reminds us in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I mean, and if some of you know the old hymn, he said, the old hymn writer says it this way, he says it well, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Um, this is just a little bit of family business, but I, I want to remind us and call us to pray for one another in the midst of these times. Um, so maybe, you know, you have the time right now. Maybe you can literally pause the video for a moment and pray, whether it's by yourself or with a family member, with a friend, hopefully not too many friends, but like with, with someone there that you would pray together, uh, that you would pray for each other. We take this call seriously. 
And you know how to pray. Praise God for who he is. Thank him for what he has done in his people. Confess your sins to him. And then pray for other people, your brothers and sisters at Cornerstone Bible Church. And if you don't know what to pray for them, that's okay. Think about the things that they may be going through, the joys and sorrows. But also, we've already learned this in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, how to pray for one another. So go ahead, take a look at Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, and pray that for real people in our church. This is excellent prayer material that we want to lift each other up with words that would honor and glorify God and build one another up. Okay, so we've come to the Word this morning to hear it speak, to allow its light to shine on our path, to get wisdom, to be comforted and changed. Psalm 86, 8-11 says this, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You, are, you alone are God. Now listen to verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I'll say it again. This, is, this is, needs to be our prayer right now as we enter this time. Teach me your way, O Lord, a yearning heart. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. As we begin our time together in the Word this morning, we need to come with truly hungering hearts, ready to receive and be fed. Hearts that earnestly pray, verse 11, along with the psalmist here. Hearts and minds that are ready to hear him speak that are ready to be shaped by his truth, that are ready to be nourished and transformed by the renewing of our minds in his word. Let's go ahead and read our passage today. And I want us to think in these ways, and then we'll pray this prayer. So let's go ahead and start at verse 1 in chapter 2, and we'll read all the way through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we, we, we listen to the psalmist and we say the same thing. There is none like you among the gods. <laughs> and when we say gods, we say the little g, really among the idols, Lord. None of the things around us that we like so much can supply all our needs and give us unparalleled happiness. They're useless idols. You alone are God. You are great, and Lord, you, just do, you do wondrous things. And that being said, teach us your way, Lord, that we may walk in your truth. 
Unite our hearts to fear your name. Teach us from this passage in Ephesians. And may you plant many other seeds that will be watered and cultivated and brought forth for fruit by your Holy Spirit's power. Lord, we rely on you to build your church. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work these truths deep into us. Lord, we we need you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. In our text today, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul is going to do something. He's going to clarify and emphasize the gracious nature of our salvation. He's just spent a bunch of time explaining to us our state prior to salvation and then what God actually does. But in today's text, he's going to emphasize the gracious nature of our salvation and then show us the fruit of that grace, what comes out of the work of God, which is a believer who walks in good works. That's kind of what all these three verses are about today. The nature, the gracious nature of God's salvation resulting in a Christian walking in good works. It's a way to kind of sum it up for us. But there's so many important details here that we need to examine. I want us to understand who God is and then therefore who we are. It's important that we would both understand who he is and understand ourselves in light of that truth. We're going to start by situating ourselves, starting in verse 1, leading into our passage today, then try to look at the details of our passage, 8 through 10, and then pull back a little bit more to show how this last part fits into the whole of 1 through 10, because truly 1 through 10 is one consistent idea that he is trying to explain. So let's go ahead and start from the top. Two weeks ago, in verses 1 through 3, we learned that we had a major problem. We were dead. We're separated from God for eternity. And then last week in verses 4 through 7, we learned of our regeneration, of our being made alive together with Christ. That's salvation. That's that we were being saved from the wrath of God. So in this progression, Paul's moved from the tyranny of the old, of the old man who was dead, the spiritual deadness, being dead, being enslaved, being condemned, He's moving from that to the freedom of life in Christ Jesus. And if you remember, he showed us that all of this was only possible as we were being joined together with Jesus. Without him, none of it was possible for us. And all of our spiritual blessings, all we saw from chapter 1, verse 3, all 15 specifically, but all of that only comes from our union with Christ. And that was really our focus from last week. But in the midst of all that wonder, that that grandiose presentation of our salvation, a theme was developing. And now that theme is coming to a head in verses 8 through 10. Paul kept referring to this act, this making alive in Christ, as a gift of grace. Um, We saw it both in verse 5 and in verse 7 that we went over last week. In verse 5, going into 6, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seat us with him in heavenly places. I mean, he kind of stops off, and he can't help himself. He's got to say it. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He, He can't help it, and he goes right back to make sure that we understand the gracious action of God in salvation. And then if you go down to verse 7, he says, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches 
of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The act of salvation, of taking a person from death to life, is no ordinary act. It's not something that just happens ordinarily and normally. Paul is taking the time within this little paragraph to make sure that we understand thoroughly the nature of this action. It is one that declares God's grace. God didn't have to do it. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't backed into a corner by our compelling arguments or by our good works. He alone chose to do it and performed all that was necessary to initiate it and to bring it to fruition or completion. From beginning to end, God did it. Paul thinks that it's extremely important, so much so that he's going to take these three verses to iron all of our questions out and to make sure we get it and understand completely that it is the God of grace who is the author and finisher of our faith. He's pointing here and helping us understand what these things mean for us. So first, most obvious topic that we need to talk about today is the wonderful truth that our salvation is solely of grace, God's grace. But second, Paul doesn't stop here. He shows us that our salvation is for something. It has a purpose outside of just making us alive. The gracious work of God is meant to move us in an important direction in the here and now, where we live, in Virginia Beach in 2020. It, in last week's passage, we saw the purpose of salvation. God saved us in order to show or display or demonstrate or draw attention to the riches of his grace. That's verse 7. I mean, that's what salvation was meant to do. It was meant to make much of God. Uh, we were made into living trophies for all to see, for all of time, and for them to marvel at the astounding grace of God. His purpose is very doxological. And that's just a big word for something that gives praise and honor and glory to God. But this week, this week we find out that there's another purpose, a purpose for us, one that changes our identity in a very noticeable way. Last week we learned that what was going on in the heavenly places, where we really can't see with our natural eyes, Paul's been pulling back the curtain to explain the bigger picture. He's been showing us, open our eyes to heavenly realities. He's telling us what's happened since the foundation of the world. He's showing us that God's great power is working in Christ Jesus for our good and his glory. We've seen that God is working salvation in us to show forth the riches of his grace to everyone for all of time. But this week, we read that Paul is giving us a secondary purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going against the first purpose. And in fact, it works together to make the first purpose even more clear, even better, and points to the first purpose, that, that glory and honor to God himself. Paul will show us that God is making you alive with Christ to the end that you would do good works. He's not just saved you from something, the wrath of God. He has saved you to something, good works, those that are found in him and Jesus Christ. You are, you and I, if you are a believer, you are a trophy of his grace, made for all to see and marvel at God's kindness and grace to wicked sinners. 
But this week, we're going to learn that these trophies don't just sit on the shelf. I mean, we are living, obeying, working trophies that do the works of the one who created us. In fact, that's kind of part of what gives us away as being his. But we'll get to all that in a bit. These are the two things that Paul is going to deal with us in this passage today. The gracious nature of our salvation and the purpose of him making us alive, which is good works. Let's take a brief walk through the passage. It's, it's pretty straightforward, um, pretty easy to understand, but the implications are immense. we got to get it. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, he's just finished talking to us about God's making us alive in Christ. The shorthand for that is he has saved us. Uh, he's just told us that God has saved us, but now he explains the nature of that saving, what it's like. For those, of us, um, for, for those of us, this is a completed work. Those that have been saved. It is done. It's, it's been, uh, been done in the past. We stand today saved in this accomplished work. But what does it mean by grace you have been saved? I mean, um, grace is not some mysterious fourth person of the Trinity. Like, like, like Jesus is pointing out, like, by grace you were saved. No, we, we realize that's not what's going on. Grace is not a person. Paul is saying that we were saved because of grace, on the basis of grace. God is the one saving. We know this is true already. We know that he's the one that's making people alive in Christ. But he's doing so based on his gracious, giving character, on who he is, on what type of person, what type of God he is. That's what grace is. I mean, to, to keep it simple, grace is is a gift, um, uh, not a swap, not a deal, not like a quid pro quo, not a partnership, or you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's not synergy. It is a gift. That's what he's talking about here. All of us understand in some way what this means to give or to receive a, a true gift. Many of us have given gifts or received uh, had received gifts, but probably the one that seems so distinct and clear to us, is when we give a gift to a child, one who truly doesn't deserve it. Uh, I can remember probably one of my most favorite gifts that I ever received one Christmas when I was probably about eight years old. I, I grew up in Almer, Ontario in Canada, um, and when we weren't skating, uh, we wanted to be skating. And this is a time period that rollerblades became very popular and kind of attainable. I mean, I, I, I couldn't afford them, but I did want them. And I can remember for Christmas, uh, my grandparents are from Pennsylvania. They, a big box came from Pennsylvania. Very exciting. We opened it up, my sisters and I, and we took things out. And I, I found lots of, you know, Bugle Boy shirts and maybe some Jordash pants and some socks and underwear and the norm and, ah, Thank you. What a gracious gift. I'm so thankful. This is, this is good. But as I was saying thank you to the VHS camcorder uh, that was later going to be taped and sent off to my grandparents, I was saying thank you for all these things. My parents said, well, you need to make sure you take everything out of the box and make sure you see everything and say thank you for everything. So I did, and as you can imagine, I was digging through the socks and underwear, and I saw four orange wheels. And then I kept digging, I saw four more orange wheels, and I, I pulled out this pair 
of rollerblades. I mean, I was overjoyed at this gift. I, I, I put them on right away, and I, I thanked the camcorder over and over and over again. I was, I was overjoyed that I had uh, this awesome gift. I, I did nothing to obtain it. I did nothing to earn it. I hadn't paid for any part of it. I, I hadn't even paid for the shipping to get it there. Uh, none of it was of me. I hadn't earned a single thing. My grandparents had lovingly, self-sacrificially, they had paid the price for this gift, and they had given it to me freely. It was a gift that I, I, I didn't deserve. Well, when we give a child a gift that they're not expecting, we do so out of a heart of love, like my grandparents did, or compassion, or generosity, or just to bless another person. And this is because of the way God is, that He is a giving, gracious, loving, blessing God. And this is good. We should do this uh, to bless others. But, but just for a moment, uh, as much as that little story and, and many other ones that you can think about of, of giving are good and help us think about gift giving and grace, uh, even the best example of giving to children comes up short of the nature of God's grace. Even if we were to talk about the self-sacrifice of one person for another, like to, to give the ultimate sacrifice and die for another person, it still can't quite describe the immensity of God's grace and what he has done to us as sinners. Look, we hated God. Uh, let that sink in. The one who made us, the one who gives us air, causes uh, air to float around allows us to breathe. The one who brings sunshine and rain and gives us food to eat and allows us to have some sort of happiness, tolerable happiness on this planet. And what did we do but hate him? This gracious creator and sustainer is the one that we hated and rebelled against. We wanted nothing to do with him or his law. Yeah, right. We, we broke those laws so many times. We were great at breaking the law. We spit in his face. We were enemies of God. And still, you know Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The nature of this action is unlike anything that we will ever know. There's been nothing like it, and there will never be anything like it afterwards. He should have crushed, crushed us from the beginning. But in the midst of all of that, he acted in grace. He acted in love to bless. He acted to give his son for us. Think about this. It wasn't just a gift that cost him a little bit. It was a gift that said, son, go to the cross, and there I will pour out all of my wrath on you. The mighty wrath on his sons so that he could graciously save us from that wrath. God's grace isn't best defined by human example or a cute story about giving a gift to a child, but rather by the collection of his gracious activities that he has done throughout all of history, exponentially to the different kingdoms and areas all over the globe that he has given his son, Jesus Christ, for our sin. It was by God's grace that we were saved. But then we have this followed up with another phrase, through faith. What does that mean? Well, faith is the human response by which God's salvation is received. 
We get that. I mean, God's grace is the grounds or the basis of our salvation, but then faith is the means by which it is appropriated, how, how, how we receive it. I, I, I believe. But just to say I believe doesn't tell the whole story, does it? I mean, to push back on our culture for a little bit here, we need to talk about faith. Paul isn't talking about faith in a general sense. You hear many refer to uh, their faith when they're going through tough times. A, a thought of you know just believing in something or someone, like maybe a higher power or a specific life philosophy or something like that. Their faith is the most important thing. As long as you keep your faith, as long as you believe in something and you keep on going with that. Friend, listen, we all believe in something. We all have faith in something. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. General faith is not the point. To be a person uh, who is optimistic when bad things happen because you just believe it's all going to turn out right will never save you. It never could. The truth is that is not faith at all. That's not the faith that Paul's talking about. We know that Paul is talking about faith in God even more specifically, faith in Christ now that he has been revealed. When Paul refers to faith here, we know that he is talking to us about trusting God alone. Believing that all of God's words and his promises are true and have been perfectly revealed to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And everything that he said is going to happen will happen. And to complete that thought, uh, true faith in God causes a person to live according to all that God has revealed about himself. The idea is bigger than just, you know, kind of looking at a page of rules and saying, yeah, I can, I can keep up these rules if, if you're going to be saving me. Yeah, I, okay, I'll do this and this. I understand. I believe I need to do that. Okay, I'll keep doing those things. It's a, it's a little bit bigger than that. Unfortunately, though, some of us have experienced that kind of a gospel that understands that it's kind of a transaction, like one that's really kind of merely in that way, one that tells us the severity of our punishment from a holy and perfect God without ever proclaiming the glories of a loving and wonderful God who supplies his children with security and rest and satisfaction and immeasurable happiness. Remember that God's law contains not only commands, all that's revealed about what we're supposed to do, but it reveals to us who he is. It is the revelation of his person. And so to have faith in God not only believes that we must say the words of repentance and mean them, but that we trust everything that he says about himself and every promise that he has made to his world. It's a wholesale denial of every other allegiance and security and falling solely into the hands of an almighty God for salvation and joy. Faith is a response to God's making us alive together with Christ. He opens our eyes. He wakes us up. He releases us from slavery. We are no longer condemned. And we see clearly and we believe. We are made alive and react in faith. Now I'll admit here, because the questions are starting to swirl, I get it. I'll admit, I don't know what the exact sequence is in all of this, but I can tell you this. Paul's making sure that we understand that salvation has nothing to do with our work or doing. Look at the next phrase. 
He says in verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Uh, what does that mean when he says that this is not your own doing? I mean, just let's be honest, don't we have to understand and don't we have to believe and don't we have to confess with our mouth and don't we have to pray and don't we have to obey? Yes, absolutely. Hear that loud and clear. The answer to that is yes. Well, fine, Chris, but like, how can you say then it's not of your own doing? I mean, it sounds like you're definitely doing. That's a really good question, and it's right for us to kind of talk about this for a moment here. Paul isn't saying that you and I don't do anything. He's not saying that at all. I mean, that would go against the rest of what Scripture says, and most importantly, what he's going to say in verse 10. Paul's saying that the doing, the understanding, the believing, the confessing, the repenting, <clears throat> the praying, the obeying, all of this is not the work of salvation. It's not. It's not the thing that takes us from life, I mean, from death to life. All of the actions that we perform are in response to his making dead people alive. The wording here is actually smoothed out again. Uh, these guys are doing a good job. And the, the verb doing in what you're looking at right here, the verb doing is, is, isn't actually even in the Greek text. Although it's an acceptable translation, the translators are showing that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. That's fine. That's right. But the actual phrase is this, and it's kind of goofy. And this is not of you. It is the gift of God. Now, that's weird for us, right? I mean, to say, but that's what Paul says. It, being salvation, is not of you. Which means that, of our, you know, that all of our salvation, from election to predestination, adoption of sons, to being inherited, to dying with Christ, to uh, you know, before the foundations of the world began being elected, all the way to being seated with Christ, all of this stuff was done in Christ and it was a gift from God to dead people. There wasn't a moment that entered in where we were like, okay, this is our time to shine and we got to do our part to make sure we qualify for this salvation. This is a gift. This isn't surprising to us, right? I mean, since we know that this is grace, this is a gift. Paul's making it clear. Your salvation was not something that you or I earned. We couldn't. Uh, it was a gracious gift of God to undeserving wicked sinners who hated him and who were dead. Now that's a gift. Paul goes on though in verse 9. He's not finished yet giving his, his nuances here. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And we need to ask, what, what does he mean by this word works here? Very simply, when he's talking about works in this scenario, he is talking about works that stand in for effort from humans in general, human effort in general, in anything. He's not just talking about like a specific list of works. If you do these works, it will equal salvation for you. No, he's saying that there's nothing that you or I could ever do that would merit us eternal life, life with God, salvation, the stopping of, of separation from God. Nothing that we could do would ever merit such a thing. He's actually just saying that a person can't do anything. They can't work to gain their salvation from God. He's saying that there is no part of the plan of salvation in which he can raise his hand and say, oh yeah, you see that little part right there? 
I, I did that part right there. I, just that little part. I, I did that. But our question should be that, okay, okay, yeah, we get that, but why not? You know, he says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I'm just going to ask, act, act like the cynical person. Like, <laughs> is God insecure? You know, um, you know, like he can't share the work of salvation with another person. He's, he's got to have it all for himself. Well, that's not quite right. I mean, he's certainly not insecure. But it is true that he cannot share the work of salvation with another. Let's talk about boasting for a minute here. This is the, this is the context we're talking. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Let's talk about boasting for a minute. What does it mean when Paul uses this word boasting? When you and I think about boasting... We usually think about a normal human context. We think about some dude talking about what he did and how great it was and uh, he's the best of all time. He's, he's the goat. Like he's, he's, he's like the best guy over and he's, and he's going on and on about himself, this boasting. And the truth is, this bothers us. I mean, this annoys us and it makes us feel angry oftentimes. Boasting, you know, uh, bothers all human beings because we actually know that the person who is boasting is a fraud. Now, I want you to consider this. that They may have done a great feat. I mean, they, they may really be good at doing something or have created something wonderful and beautiful and accomplished something stupendous. But at the base level, all human boasting is ludicrous. When someone says, look at me and what I did, they're actually telling a lie. They may be, have somehow been a part of what's going on. They may not even know that it's a lie, but they're pointing to themselves as though they're the originator of this incredible thing or deed. Nothing's new, and no one originated themselves. We know that God made every human being and gave each one gifts and talents and abilities and access to resources. So when someone boasts, we all sense the incongruity. Okay, enough of yourself, we get it. Every human truly has no grounds for boasting, really, about anything. How much more when it comes to our spiritual life, our salvation, our regeneration. I mean, why is it that salvation can't be a result of works? Because all glory is due to the one who actually accomplished salvation, God. None of us did anything, not even that little thing that we want to point to. None of it was done by us. All glory is due to him, the one who actually accomplished this work. There can't be any boasting on our part. Why? Because there was nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, that we could do to earn any particle of salvation. It had to be completely 100% accomplished by the only one who could actually do anything about our desperate situation of deadness. It's not like God was being all weird and insecure, like, no, 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 I'm going to do this. Just let me do it. I'm going to do it. Me, 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 me. No, it was more like there was nothing that mankind could do about it, no matter how hard he tried. It was impossible. Almost like, almost like we were dead. 
almost like the impossibility of a person trying with all his or her might to give themselves life when they are already dead. He's already told us who we were. I mean, this dead person wasn't even aware of their deadness. They're dead. I mean, they, they, they had no desire for life. They're dead. I mean, they, they, they couldn't flex their, their muscles and pull themselves to sit up. They're dead. They couldn't do any of these things. Guys, there's no boasting because there's nothing for anyone to boast about. And thus, it doesn't make any sense at all. No dead human being could do anything, any works, to merit the salvation that was given by God alone. So in verse 8 and 9, we get quite a comprehensive understanding of what Paul is telling us about salvation, that it was by grace through faith. He says, this is not of you, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And with the combination of these two thoughts, these two phrases, Paul is saying, your salvation wasn't because of who you are or were, and it wasn't because of anything that you did. It was all of God. But now he'll move forward. He's not done yet. Because God's gracious act of salvation doesn't just save us and leave us on the shelf. It doesn't just save us and make us a beautiful piece of artwork that hangs in the wall, you know, motionless. We're not inactive. We're not inanimate. In fact, he's taken what was dead and given it life together with Christ. He's done the work, get this, he has done the work of creating a new man. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, there's a lot going on here, but uh, it boils down to some very simple ideas. First, he says we, Christians, those who have been made alive together with Christ, we are his workmanship. This is say, like saying that this is God's masterpiece, uh, th- this thing that shows off his creative abilities of the maker. So this is what he's saying. He's like that we are his workmanship. Next he says that we were created in Christ Jesus. Now this isn't surprising since we've been seeing in Christ everywhere, together with Christ everywhere, that God has done every other good thing to us in Christ. But it's important to see that this is something a little bit different he's adding to the picture here. That there was an act of creating when he made us alive. Uh, the reason I stop off at this point is because, again, it strikes at the idea that we had something to do with being saved. A person who does not exist cannot create themselves. That person it, it, they must be created by someone else. Someone else must do this work. So even here, where God is pointing in in the new direction of where we ought to be headed, he's showing us that God is in the driver's seat, creating us in Christ Jesus. But the next phrase is the one that shows us our purpose as Christians. We know that God's act of saving sinners from death to life was so that he could show forth the riches of his grace to everyone for all the ages to come. But here Paul is showing us that there is a sub-purpose that supports the ultimate purpose. He says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here we realize that we aren't trophies sitting on the shelf like we keep talking about, but rather we are trophies being used working for the one who made them. 
God has set us apart as his workmanship to do his works, and he calls them good works. We're not only saved from the wrath of God, but we are saved to good works, to live like our Father lives, to do the things that Jesus Christ does, to live in accordance with his law. Those who struggle with the idea that they contribute nothing to salvation, that somehow they're like, well, I kind of got to add this in there somewhere. It's, well, it's got to be like my work of faith. Like that's the thing that I do to kind of make this all happen. Those who struggle with this idea, you know, they make the argument. So, you know, if this is true, if God does everything and we don't have to do anything at all, do we just get to live however we want to? You know, and just, you know, since God saves sinners from the beginning all the way to the end, can we just live however we want to? No, of course not. I mean, God has created us for good works, and Paul makes it very evident right here that this is our end goal, what we are saved for. And by the way, Romans 6 makes it pretty clear too. You guys will know this verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No way. The problem that we struggle here with, with here, you and I start thinking about this, we are struggling with something called the source and something called fruit. We are struggling how these two things work out with our salvation. I mean, Paul, uh, let me start here. Many religions, and unfortunately even some Christians, believe that good works are necessary for us to receive salvation. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, believes that good works are necessary fruit of that salvation that finds its only source in God alone. We don't want to mix, uh, mix these two up. We could be in a real batch of trouble here if we're missing this. Because before, if we switch these around, we are messing up the gospel. And what we're seeing is not the gospel at all. The source of our salvation is our gracious God. The fruit of our salvation is good works. But just in case you are like me, and just in case you, you get to this point, you're like, okay, now we've been made alive together with Christ and now we can start doing good works and I can do my best to impress him and work hard and, and, and love others and do righteously. In case you're like me, he stops us in our tracks here with the next phrase. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All the good works that you and I set out to do all things that we desire to do and please the Lord and love one another when they're done rightly, <laughs> all these have been prepared beforehand for us by God himself. In other words, the source of salvation is God. No boasting, guys. And, then, and the fruit of our salvation was prepared beforehand by God. No boasting. You and I have no leg to stand on when it comes to boasting, before, during, after salvation, whatever point at this we are at, it is all of God alone. It is all of his grace and how we respond in faith and how we work out righteousness and how we do good works is fruit of his working in us. Yeah, Jeremiah says it and then Paul quotes it. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's the only one that's actually worth blessing. The only one that can actually receive the boast. Everyone else doesn't measure up. doesn't matter what they've done. They're not the originator. They're not the real thing. They can't actually boast. 
He's the only one who actually lives up to the claims. He is legit. He's the real deal. And for him to boast, or for us to boast in him, is true and right, and it is good. For God to boast is not pride and and somehow sinful, but rather it shows the reality of who he is. He alone may boast, for he is good and right and just. And when he proclaims that truth to the world, the world gets a clear picture of what is most important, what true treasure is. And if they can see that, and he calls them, they will know ultimate grace and good and happiness. So when God boasts, it is right and true and good, and we echo hallelujah. This is our God. This is him. With this last phrase, Paul brings us back to the very beginning. We're in his workmanship. We know we're his workmanship. We have one last phrase to go here. Creating Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, if that sounds familiar, I want you to go ahead and look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, where we started two weeks ago. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. When Paul began describing our former state, he talked about the way that we walked, the way that we lived, our everyday lifestyle. It's called sometimes our conversation, what we were like. Before Christ, our lifestyle was marked by the fruits or the works of the world, Satan, and the flesh. That's what our works were. That's what we walked in prior to Christ. But in Christ, when we were made alive, saved from wrath, we were saved to good works. The works of God, the works that are in keeping with his character, that proclaim the one that saved us. We are saved to walk in a different way than we once did. We now walk, think of this, we now walk by the Spirit. That's the Spirit of God. We now walk in righteousness. Our lives are characterized by the new life that we have with Christ Jesus. And with this last phrase, Paul closes out our text for today. I mean, what a critical teaching for us as a church. These three verses verses are precious to us. In these three verses, Paul has shown us the gracious nature of salvation, all of him, and then the purpose of him making us alive for us to be doing and walking in good works. Paul tells us that our salvation was not based on us or our works, but on God's grace alone. And then in the same breath, he turns to tell us that God created us to do stuff, to work, to do good works, that we were created to be walking, living in these good works. I mean, this is a phenomenal teaching because he puts to rest both of the ditches that we so easily fall into. It guards us from the dangers of seeing our salvation incorrectly. It keeps us from thinking our works somehow, as as minute as they may be, that our works somehow get us and keep us saved. But then also he turns and he shows us that our good works are exactly what you and I were made to do. That we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what our goal is, that we would act like God. Our salvation declares the riches of God's grace. It creates people who walk in good works. Works that look like the works 
that God does. Paul doesn't elaborate on those good works here, but guess what? He will. When we get to chapters 4 through 6, we are going to see a plethora of good works and what it looks like for the Christian, the one who has now been made alive, to live according to God's word and will and by his power. Uh, when we get to verse, chapters 4 through 6, we're going to see that everything that we do in obedience to Christ is good works. We're going to get all of our good works categories filled out and ideas that are, go on and on forever and ever as we serve and know and live in Christ. We do these good works. But more on that in, in, in the weeks to come. But for today, we've done a lot of work here today. You, you've hung with me. I, I thank you. It's enough for us, though, to think about the truths here that we have received, to understand Paul's teaching, that we have been saved by God's grace alone, but that we've been saved to walk in good works. Hallelujah. This puts us exactly where we're supposed to be, in full dependence of God, on God, zealous to do the works that our God is working in us, that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'll finish with our text today because I think it's just so good. We should just read it and then we'll pray. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are aghast at what you have done. Your grace is immeasurable. Your kindness towards us in Jesus Christ is something that we cannot fathom. It is too great for us. Your mercy is unending. And Lord, the, what you have done in purchasing, purchasing our salvation by Christ's blood on the cross is something that we could never do. And Lord, we stand back and we say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We say, gracious are you, God. Our God is a God of grace and mercy and salvation. We love you, God. We thank you. I pray that you would take these truths and, 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 and drill them deep into our hearts. Because if we will get these, Lord, it affects everything else that we do. Lord, it affects the way that we serve you. It affects the way that we think about our salvation. It affects our assurance that it was ever only by you. Lord, it increases our faith. It shows us who you are. And Lord, it causes us to rejoice. It really points back to that first purpose, Lord, that this would be showing off the riches of your grace. We ask that you would help us to both believe this and to walk in these good works, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.